Okay, well, thank you so much to our praise team this morning. Uh, it's my favorite time of the year. I just want to say that uh, as we begin today. I absolutely love when we turn the corner from Thanksgiving into December and we start to concentrate our attention, especially in the church, to the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I never get tired of the passage that John read for us this morning. It is an amazing account of the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I absolutely love this this time of the year. And as John prayed in his prayer, you know, may we not get all caught up in the hubbub of the season, but that we remember that this is really, for the Christian, this is a a monumental time. It's a time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the, the one whom God sent from the glories of heaven to come to the earth and to do what only he could do, to die in the place of sinners like us, to give us a chance of eternal life through his death and his resurrection. And so, uh, so grateful for this time of the year to be able to focus our attention on the birth of Jesus. And this morning we want to begin our Christmas Advent series. And it's sort of a lead up to the celebration of the birth of Christ on Christmas morning. And so each week during the month, we're going to have our sermon titles taken from some of the great Christmas hymns of the faith. And there's actually a listing of these in the insert in your bulletins. If you don't mind, if you would take those out, I want to read to you the hymn that we will be taking our cues from this morning. And while you're doing that, the term Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is translated from the Greek word uh, parousia, which simply means coming. Okay? Parousia, parousia was used to describe the coming of Jesus as a baby in a manger and his future second coming. And so foundational to our faith, I've already mentioned it, but foundational to our faith are these two comings of Jesus. The coming of Jesus at his birth. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God sent Jesus to come to the earth to live a perfect life, to go to the cross of Calvary as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks all about the substitution, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And so that was at his first coming, and we know how his first coming ended. It ended with that propitiatory sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and his subsequent resurrection. And then he was on the earth for some 40 days in a glorified body, appearing to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And then he ascended up into heaven. And that's where he is now. He's preparing, John 14, he's preparing a place for those who trust in him. He's seated, literally seated at the right hand of the Father. His work has been finished. And so now, as the church, we wait for his second coming, right? And so we celebrate during the month of December his first coming, but we must be mindful of his second coming, that Jesus is coming again. And I'm going to tell you, I think about his coming more now than I ever have in my entire life. When you're younger, you don't think about the future much, right? You don't think about that one day soon we're going to be in the glories of heaven. We're going to be with Jesus. When you get a little bit older, you begin to think about it more and more and more and more. And as you survey the landscape of the world that we're living in, we're like, come, Jesus, come now, please come. And so we look forward to his second 
coming. Well, our sermon title for today is, O Come All Ye Faithful. And so I've asked you to take out the inserts in your bulletin for a reason, because not only does it share the Christmas Advent Sermon Series schedule on one side, but on the other side, we have the words to this famous hymn. And I'd like to read them to you, and then I'd like to speak of them just for a moment here as we begin today. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. And I love the refrain, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. God from true God and light from light eternal, born of a virgin to earth he comes, only begotten Son of God the Father. O come, let us adore him. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. O come, let us adore him. Yea, Lord, we greet Thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to Thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh, appearing. You know, there's a number of wonderful themes represented in the four stanzas of this hymn that was written by John Francis Wade in 1743. For instance, as I just read in verse 1, we're invited to come and behold Him. And I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure we don't do this enough. I've been working on this in my own life to just ponder and consider who Jesus is, to stand in wonder of who he is, to contemplate and soak in his majesty and and his kingship, and then to marvel over his desire to have a personal relationship with us and what that means. As I read verse 2, The author borrows phrases from the Nicene Creed, which was written uh, back in the 4th century as a statement of faith that came out of the Council of Nicaea. And here's what the Nicene Creed says in part. And we don't often sing this one. We don't often sing this stanza. But the Nicene Creed reflects the words that are here in this uh, hymn in verse 2. It says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And then in verse 3 of this hymn, it's addressed specifically to the choir of angels that we learn about in Revelation chapter 5. And then we as the people of Christ and citizens of heaven are encouraged to join them in the celebration of the one true and living God who has come to this earth in the flesh, the great incarnation. And then verse 4 of this powerful hymn, it's addressed to Jesus himself. Notice here that we are encouraged to greet him in his birth, to greet him in his humanity and bestow upon him the glory that is due his name. And then, of course, the refrain in this hymn is a clarion call to adore Christ as Lord. I grew up adoring a lot of different things. I grew up admiring a lot of different things, a lot of different people. When I came to faith in Christ, my adoration changed dramatically. 
And I think we need to think about how we're adoring Him. Not just in our minds, or not just necessarily in our words, but also in our actions. How do we adore Jesus Christ as Lord, as Master, as Kyrios? All the truths of this hymn are encapsulated in the passage that John read for us this morning out of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So there's a lot here that we could further consider, but what I'd like to concentrate on with you this morning is our call to be faithful. The title of this hymn, O Come, All Ye Faithful. What does a life of faithfulness look like? What made the folks that faithfully flocked to Jesus different than all the rest? How can you and I live a life of faithfulness to our Savior? How can we best adore Jesus with our lives? So if you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And for the most part, we're just going to anchor here, and then we're going to work to answer those all-important questions that I just asked. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says this, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any other human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God." And so here in verse 1, we find that the Apostle Paul is explaining what true faithfulness looks like. And he does so by giving us two descriptive words to unpack. And we find the first word here, the first descriptive word in verse 1, and it is servant. Servant. So faithfulness that pleases Christ involves serving. Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. And what I love about this and the Apostle Paul's life in general is that he consistently deflects any praise and adoration that comes his way, and he always takes the opportunity to direct any credit or praise to the Lord. Sound familiar? Just like we said about John the Baptist. This is a reminder that none of us are all that special sorry. None of us are all that special. And really, I think the time of the year that it is, and just coming out of Thanksgiving and us moving into the Christmas season, that should be at the forefront of our mind. We are undeserving sinners, and yet God sent Jesus to come and to do what we could not do for ourselves. It's an unbelievable act of enormous love. This word here for servants is an interesting word. It's not the usual word for servants in Scripture, which is diakonos, and 
That's the common term that's used for servant or, or deacon in the New Testament. Instead, Paul uses the word huperetes, which literally means under rowers. Okay? This, this word's used 20 times in the New Testament. The, the under rowers were the lowest galley slaves on a ship. And so we need to think more like the recipients of God's word than those who are living in the 21st century, okay? And this is a problem sometimes in Bible interpretation because we're living now in this era of time and we often read into the text what's going on in our culture today. But see, the meaning of the Bible is not what we think it means today based upon the current climate that we live in. The Bible means what the author intended for it to mean in its culture when it was given. Do we understand that? So when this was given, and and he talks about being a servant, the recipients of that knew exactly what he meant. This is before the invention of, you know, motors and steam engines and all these kinds of things. If you wanted to get on a boat and you wanted to go from here to way over there, guess what? There are are going to be guys that are down-ripped guys that are down in the lowest level of the ship and they're doing this all day long and so when he says that we are servants servants of christ people are thinking galley slaves under rowers people that are at the bottom of the boat is that what he's saying i mean this is the apostle paul he's the great apostle God uses him in an amazing thing. Most people think that the Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary to ever live. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He's legendary. And he views himself as a servant, just like the guys who are down at the bottom of the boat. Amazing. But this is how Paul says that we are to view ourselves what does faithfulness to christ look like what is faithfulness that pleases christ well it includes serving servants of christ are under rowers of christ christ is the the captain of the ship and the under rowers are the ones who are in complete subjection to the captain paul says here What Paul says here makes complete sense and is consistent with how he worked to minimize himself. And Apollos and Cephas. If you remember back in chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants, and he uses the word diakonos there, through whom you have believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. In other words, who are we? We're, we're nobodies, just servants, under rowers, galley slaves of the great captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 7 says, So then the, the one who plants, nor the one who waters, is anything but God who causes the growth. You see, you don't, you don't rank galley slaves, menial galley slaves. You and I can't accomplish anything in and of ourselves. Certainly we can plant, and we should plant. And certainly we can water, and we can water, and should water. But only God can bring about the growth. 
This has been so helpful for me over the years as I try to tell people about Jesus. Because in my younger years in the church, I would have tried as hard as I possibly could to try to get this person to say a prayer, even against their will, but just say the prayer, right? Just say the prayer. Not anymore. I'm a nobody. You're a nobody. Apollos is a nobody. Paul's a nobody. We can plant. We can plant the seed of the gospel. We can even come after someone who's planted the seed of the gospel and water the seed. But God gets the glory for the growth. Not us. Not us. We're just menial galley slaves who can water, certainly can plant, but God causes all of the growth. You see, servants don't boast of their accomplishments or their credentials. (laughs) They just faithfully serve. Certainly, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've noticed the plethora of children that are being born into our church. It seems like every month now we'll have one or two, three, you know. We just have a lot of babies that are being born into the church. So, as a service to mothers that have come home from the hospital and they've just gone through labor and they have a new baby and they're taking care of the new baby and maybe they have other kids and, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a lot. And so as a service to those mothers and to their families, our church provides meals to them, right? So we've been doing this since the inception of our church. And so you'll see often uh, opportunities to be able to take a meal to somebody. Maybe somebody's come out of, the, out of surgery and, and we can help them and minister to them by taking them a meal. Or somebody's had a child and we can minister to them by, by taking them a meal. I was thinking about this as I was preparing the message today. So many of you do that. So many of you serve others in that way. You serve Christ by serving others. And so many of you are sacrificially putting together meals to take to other people. And you know what? I have not seen one person brag about it. I have not seen one person on any social media outlet say, guess what I did? I took a meal to so-and-so. Praise me. Send me a note of encouragement. No. <laughs> I've not seen one person even advertise that they've done that. No. Why? Because they're just faithfully serving. And, and I think that's the point here of what Paul's trying to get out, is we, we're really not anything special. We just faithfully serve the one who is special. Servants don't boast of their accomplishments or their credentials. They just faithfully serve. And we take our cues from Jesus who said in Mark 10, 45, that he didn't come to this earth to serve, but to be served and to, and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm sorry, I read that wrong, didn't I? He didn't come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus! Jesus didn't come to the earth for people to serve him 
He came to the earth to serve other people. One of our great needs in our church today is that we serve our mothers. All these children are being born in the church, so we have more and more kids in the nursery and the toddlers and in our, our classes and things. We need more help. You can serve in this way by, by, by helping in the nursery or in the toddler room. I've never had one person ever say, hey, guess what? I served in the nursery last week. Or I served in the toddler room last week. No, they just faithfully serve. You see the heart. And I think this is what Paul is getting at here. Servants don't brag about their accomplishments. When is the last time that you sat down and really examined how you're serving? And remember, we serve Christ by serving others, right? Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for us. We serve Him by serving others. And so what kind of servant are you? How are you doing with that? And so the first descriptive word that Paul uses here as to what true faithfulness looks like is servant. The second descriptive word is steward. Faithfulness to Christ involves stewarding. And this also is a very interesting word. It's the Greek word oikonomos. It's used just 10 times in the New Testament. The word steward literally means a house manager. A house manager. It's one who had complete control of a household. They weren't the owner, but they were the manager. They took care of the finances, the property, the meals, all of the other servants in the home. It was a very important job. And so each of us, as Paul says, is to be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God that he mentions here are those things that are hidden and can be known only by divine revelation. And so Paul was a true steward of the mysteries of God. He preached the whole counsel of God, even at great peril to himself. Paul was not a sugarcoater. He preached the hard gospel truth to sinners. It was a repulsive message to so many Keep your finger there, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and turn back to Acts chapter 20. I want to catch the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. So the book of Acts is a narrative, a historical narrative of the inauguration of the church, and then the future perpetuation of the church, and the two, I guess the two uh, stars of this historical account are Peter and Paul. So the first part of the book of Acts is about Peter and his relationship with Jesus, and then the last part of it is about Paul and his relationship with Jesus. But in verse 20, notice what he says, and, 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 and Paul was pounded everywhere he went everywhere he went. He was kind of a rock star with Christians, but with the unsaved world? No. <laughs> no. I mean, he would eventually either get uh, physically accosted or they'd run him out of town. They didn't like his message. But notice in verse 20, 
I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Over to verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And we can go on and we can look at all kinds of different examples about the life of the Apostle Paul, but the but in context here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he didn't shrink away from being a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. And we cannot, cannot shrink from giving the true unadulterated gospel to people who need it. So we see the two descriptive words that Paul uses here, servant and steward, but not to be missed is the responsibility of servants and stewards. So I'd encourage you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We see that here at the end of verse 2. Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful or trustworthy. O come all ye faithful. Robert Murray McShane once said, it is not so much great talents that God blesses as great likeness to Christ. The word trustworthy means faithful. The word faithful means trustworthy. The primary responsibility of the servant of Christ is to be faithful, to be trustworthy. If the church were only made up of faithful, committed, trustworthy children of God, can you imagine the impact that we could have on this world? The reality of it is that we can affect nothing in and of ourselves. Only God can bring about the results, but our job is to be faithful to the task. One of my favorite stories of this is the story of Norman Geisler. I believe I've spoken of this before, but it's worth repeating Norman Geisler, most of you have heard of Norman Geisler, the great Christian apologist. He tells the story that as a child, he was invited to vacation Bible school by some of his friends in his neighborhood. And so he was picked up by a bus driver. And after VBS, he went back to that same church for Sunday school classes for 400 Sundays. 400 Sundays, I think that's somewhere around eight years, right? Each week, Norm Geisler, the great Christian apologist, was faithfully picked up by the same bus driver. Week after week after week, he attends church. He never, ever, during that period of time, those 400 weeks, did he come to faith in Christ. But finally, during his senior year in high school, after being picked up by the same bus driver for church for over 400 consecutive weeks. God does an amazing work in his life. He commits his life to Christ. You see, God just used the steady faithfulness of that bus driver in the life of Norman Geisler. God gives us his word. He gives us his spirit He gives us gifts to operate within the body of Christ. He gives us His power. And so servants and stewards are to faithfully use those resources that are available for us and depend upon God for the results. 
But not to be missed here is there's a coming judgment. Things start to get serious here in verse 3. He says, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So like the Apostle Paul, the one thing that I realized early in my pastoral ministry is that it is absolutely impossible to live up to the expectations of every person in the church. A couple of years back, I was asked to share with the pastoral ministry majors at Baptist Bible Seminary. So I had the floor and I was speaking with all these guys, uh, wide-eyed guys uh, like I was when I was in Bible college, that are all interested in joining the ministry. And so I began my talk by letting them know that they are soon to enter the fishbowl. Pastors and ministry leaders live in the proverbial fishbowl. Their every action and decision is scrutinized. I I told them that if they they make it in the ministry, which so many don't, and by the way, thousands upon thousands of guys are getting out of the ministry for this very reason. But if they make it, it'll be because they realize with the Apostle Paul that it is a very small thing that they would be scrutinized by other people. Verse 3. Paul says here that he doesn't even scrutinize himself. Paul was so, so sold out for the cause of Christ that he was conscious of nothing against himself. But he goes on to say that that doesn't acquit him. Why? Because no human person is fully qualified to examine and evaluate the heart of God's servants. And truly, no pastor or ministry leader should be all that concerned about such an evaluation because ultimately, only God knows the heart. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy that he's to be diligent to present himself approved unto God, not necessarily other people, but God. And so Paul's point is that in the end, in the end, for all of us, in the end, it is only the evaluation of God that matters, right? Whether you're a ministry leader or not, And that evaluation is spoken of here at the end of the section in verse 5, which says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so in line with what Paul shares here, is what he said to the church at Rome in Romans 14 and verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And so one day, every Christian will stand before Jesus. For what purpose? To give an account of how they've lived for him. This is called the judgment seat of Christ, or Uh, The Greek word is bima, B-E-M-A, bima seat. This is different, by the way, from the great white throne judgment. Now, the great white throne judgment is the final judgment of the lost before they're cast into the lake of fire. We learn this in Revelation chapter 20. So there are different judgments at the end of time, okay? So 
I'll get back to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, but right now let's talk a little bit about this great white throne judgment. Everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ in this life and has not come to a saving faith of Jesus will stand also before God, and they will too give an account, but it'll fall on deaf ears. They will be cast into the lake of fire. This judgment will take place after the millennial kingdom and after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And it's at this final judgment in Revelation 20, it says that the books will be opened. The books of heaven will be opened at that time, including the book of life, Revelation 20 and verse 12. And it's in this book, the book of life, that determines who will enter eternal life with Christ and who will face eternal everlasting punishment in the lake of fire. I mean, the picture just blows me away. People that I love, people that are in my family, people that I've walked with in occupational work or played sports with over the years, if those people do not come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will stand before God at this final judgment. God's going to open up a book And he's going to say, your name's not here. You have failed to trust in my gift, Jesus Christ, who I sent to the earth. And I, look, you know me, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe 100% in the sovereignty of God in all things, including the salvation of the souls of men. But I can't help but think some of this falls on us. Sure, God brings the growth. But are we planting? Are we watering? I mean, I think back. I keep a presence. I can't stand social media. I keep a presence on social media for a couple of reasons. One, so that I can communicate whatever, which I don't do a lot, but I can communicate with a lot of people in, a lot, in one fell swoop. I think that's why a lot of you are on there too, right? Because we can, you know, like... People that know my family, it was fun to be able to put uh, the pictures of our daughter Allison's wedding on there. People that couldn't come to the wedding, they're out in Illinois or wherever they may be, family members that are across the country that could see that, friends. And, you know, it's nice for them to know that, that Allison was, was married. And so social media is good for all that, but I don't like it for the most part. I stay on there because, like I said, we can communicate. My only bridge, I I think some of you would say this too, because we've talked about it. My only bridge to guys that I spent a lot of time with back in the day in high school, uh, in my neighborhood, neighborhoods that Kathy and I have lived in over the years, my only bridge to them is this thing called social media. That's it. Otherwise, I would have no contact with them whatsoever. So every week, Pastor Flip puts my sermon up on social media. He tags my name. It goes to my page. What if, what if some person that I knew 40 years ago listens to my message and listens maybe to this message today about Jesus and the coming of Jesus and our responsibility to adore him. What if they listen to the message 
and they come to faith in Christ. God saves people at any number of different venues and times. It's my only bridge. It's all I got. I don't like it. I don't like the whole stuff that goes on. But it's my only bridge. I think about it. All these people that I knew in high school, and I told people I was a Christian in high school, and I gave the gospel to some people, but not as many as I should have. And I think of that, and I think, these people, if they don't trust in Christ, they're going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. There should be an urgency in our lives to tell people about Jesus. Not just his birth. I mean, that's easy. A babe in a manger. Ah, swaddling clothes. Ah, born in a stable. Ah. The world says awe to all those things. But why did Jesus come? That's the message that needs to be proclaimed. Why did Jesus come? What's the purpose of him coming as a baby in a manger? Why did God send him? The world needs to know. They need to know there's this judgment that is coming. They need to know. But the judgment seat of Christ is different. It's different. This is for Christians. And so at the Bema seat, New Testament Christians will not be judged in a condemning way because as Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, at the Bema seat, each man will be praised and rewarded, not on the basis of what others thought of us, but on our service and stewardship from the pure motives of our heart. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So all of us who know Christ as Savior will also stand before God Almighty, Jesus Christ, in a glorified body. And we'll give an account for how we've lived for Him. You know, if you've noticed a theme since we started with our exposition of the Gospel of John, it's, it's absolutely vital to understand that what a person says must actually match up with what they do. Or what they say is invalid. It's the same with this admonition to be faithful. Spurgeon said, and I've used this before, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. And I want, to, I want to close today by showing you a couple of examples of Paul sharing that what we say should never be separated from what we do, okay? And again, uh, from the words of the Apostle Paul to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, you could turn there if you'd like, I'll read it to you, First Timothy 4 and verse 12, he says, look, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech conduct, love, faith, and that means faithfulness, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So we know the context there, right? We know the context. Timothy had entered the fishbowl. Folks were making accusations against him, 
And they were even questioning his qualification in part because of his age. And so what's Paul's advice? He essentially says, Timothy, rise above the circumstance and concentrate on being an example. And the first way that he says for Timothy to be an example there in 1 Timothy 4.12 is in his speech. In other words, be an example to others with what you say. This is what Paul told the church at Philippi. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so as to give grace to those who hear. And so then he follows that likely, most, in the most likeliest way. He then tells them to be an example in your conduct. In other words, what you say should match what you do, and what you do should match what you say. In other words, he says to Timothy here, who's getting all these accusations thrown at him, show people what is right. Show people what is right. And we do that by standing on truth and by loving others as Christ loved us. But notice what he says next. He tells Timothy to be an example in your faithfulness. In other words, stay faithful. Stay trustworthy. And then Paul reminds him also to stay pure. We can say the right things. We can try to do the right things. We can appear loving and faithful, but he tells him to stay pure. I think he's referring here to purity in thought, purity in word, and then certainly also purity in action. Purity is the outflow of a life lived in faithfulness to our Savior. I think I said a couple of messages back, people say a lot of things, right? People say a lot of things, but does their life match up with what they say? And so that's one example of what Paul shares with Timothy. But how about the advice that Paul gave to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 10? He says there, and we know Titus 2 primarily because it's the admonition for older women to minister to younger women in the church, right? And so a lot of women's ministries are called Titus 2 ministries. But we we forget that men are addressed there too in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 verses 6 through 10, likewise urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is above, which is beyond reproach, and so that your opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So you see the consistency of Paul's advice, right? And then I think the crescendo of what we've been considering today is expressed in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and men. Love and faithfulness. Love of God, love of His truth, 
love of others, it's the perfect motivation for us to be faithful. It's the foundation of faithfulness. O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. It doesn't mean that life will always be easy. But in the grind of life, and remember we talked about we need the grind. We need to be found faithful as we endure various things. We have this promise that Paul shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13. Even if we are at times faithless, what? He remains faithful. He's a rock. He's a rock. God is our rock. Christ is our rock. Even if we slip up, even if we do something that, that we shouldn't do or say something we shouldn't say, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even if we are at times faithless, and we all have been there, He remains faithful. Isn't that a great promise? Faithfulness is a discipline. It's an intentional act of the will. Faithfulness is an outgrowth of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We celebrate this month the, the first coming of Jesus, but let's not forget that He's coming again. Amen. He's coming again. And wouldn't it be great? I mean, I'm just saying. Wouldn't it be great if He came on Christmas Day? Wouldn't it be great? We're all centered around here at our church. We're all here. We've heard the kids sing. We've heard the adult choir sing. We're, we're, we all got red and green on. And Jesus comes. And He takes us out of this mess. And we go to be with Him in glory. O come, all ye faithful. I want to hear those words. Don't you want to hear the words from Jesus? Thou good and faithful servant, you have served me well, not perfectly. You've been a bonehead. But you've served me well. Thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we turn our attention now to uh, a bit of a fast-forwarding from your birth to your death, as we center our attention on the elements that we partake of on the first Sunday of every month, we call the Lord's Supper, we call communion. And Lord, we want to turn our attention now to this monumental death that provided so much for us in the area of eternal life by believing in Christ. So may we switch our focus, thankful for your birth and grateful beyond measure for your death. So Lord, we pray that as we partake today, we do so, it says, until you come again. And may that be soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.